0: You that are here regularly might have detected from the flavor of the meditation what tonight's talks about. Um, I'd like to explore the power of what we call a listening attention. And it's something that we often don't live in. We're often so busy and so lost in our our stories and thoughts, that we just don't take in much. And it's interesting to me if you reflect in your life on the moments that really stand out as as meaningful, as as times that you've cherished, as epiphanies, as moments of real creativity. Um, There's a common denominator we'll find in any of those situations, which is that in some way we were paying attention. There's a quality of being available to life. And the truth is that in any of the moments that we become really available, they become sacred. I love the uh, language of sacred presence because sacred isn't really something so special and different, it's it's the quality of Awakeness and vibrance, aliveness, awareness that's really our nature and is possible in any moment that we wake up from the trance that we spend most of our time in. So, all of meditation training is really about how to pay attention. I mean, it doesn't matter what culture, what tradition you're studying and It's all about how do you pay attention? How do you wake up from the cocoon of familiar thoughts, the dialogue that we just stay inside of all the time and touch that freshness? In another way to say it is, how do we reconnect and be at home right here in this body, in this heart, in this life? Because when we're lost in thought, when we're in our habitual mode, we've left ourselves. We're not here. These are the words of Thomas Merton. Of what avail is it if we can travel to the moon, if we cannot cross the abyss that separates us from ourselves? This is the most important of all journeys, and without it, all the rest are useless. And I think that the yearning that brings us to spiritual life is just that, that we have a yearning to come home. And we might use the language of authenticity, that we really want to feel real, or maybe the language of aliveness, that we really want to feel like we're not skimming the surface this lifetime, that we actually showed up. Digna Han says, we made our, met our appointment with life, you know. And yet, probably there's not one of us here that isn't quite acutely aware of how we just get dragged around by our, our minds. We get distracted and pulled all over the place. And then we move around a lot mentally. You know, our minds are always leaping around, planning, worrying, and so on. And physically, we just, we're not inclined towards coming to rest interesting article this week in the New York Times business section. Uh, I'll read you little pieces of it. It describes how we're addicted to multiple stimuli. Mr. Lacks, a 44-year-old venture capitalist, is sitting in a conference for telecommunications executives at a hotel <coughs> near Los Angeles, but he's not all here. Out of one year, he listens to a live presentation about cable television technology. Simultaneously, he surfs the net on a laptop with a wireless connection while occasionally checking his mobile device, part phone, part pager, and part internet gadget for email. Mr. Lax flew from Boston and paid $2,000 to attend the conference called Vortex, but he cannot unwire himself long enough to give the presenters his complete focus. If he did, he would face a fate worse than lack of productivity. He would become bored. It's hard to concentrate on one thing, he said, adding, I think I have a condition. <laughs> <laughs> I like that, a condition. So there's scientists now that are studying an aspect of technology and how it affects our attention span, because this really is, is culture-wide. Um, these speed demons, those that are really addicted, are compulsively drawn to constant stimulation provided by incoming data. Call it OCD, Online Compulsive Disorder. (laughs) Multitasking's addictive. They say it's like a dopamine squirt to be connected, that we're constantly being wired to those of narcotics. It's like a hit of pleasure, stimulation, escape the same pathway as our drugs of abuse and pleasure, to constantly be feeding off of data, information, constantly needing to be on the phone, be email, be doing. You know, I read this and I said, well, you know, most of the people I know aren't that caught in this in that way, but it's actually like that. We are caught in speediness. You'll remember some of you, Thomas Merton describes it a kind of innate form of violence in our culture where we disconnect from the natural rhythms and we get addicted to doing. It's not just to be a participant in the world and be helpful and serve, it's an addiction to doing in order to in some way run away from some hole inside us, some feeling of incompleteness, some fear of unworthiness. We're pretty addicted. So, what's sad is that in this addiction we're chasing after something. We want to feel more complete, we want to feel full, we want to feel alive. And yet, as I mentioned at the beginning, the actual experiences we most cherish in our life, and I think this is probably true for everyone here, are the ones when there's genuine contact with our own hearts and with each other. And there has to be a quality of presence. We can't be speedy at those times. This is Rumi. Totally conscious and apropos of nothing, you come to me. Is someone here, I ask? The full moon is inside your house. My friends and I go running out into the street. I'm in here, comes a voice from the house but we aren't listening. We're looking up at the sky. Lo, I am with you always means that when you look for God, God is in the look of your eyes, in the thought of looking. Nearer to you than yourself are things that have happened to you. There's no need to go outside. Be melting snow. Wash yourself of yourself. A white flower grows in the quietness. Let your tongue become that flower. So the quietness that Rumi talks about and that really all the mystics talk about is this listening presence. When we're really abiding in the awareness that's here, available, able to be intimate with our world, So I'd like to explore a bit more tonight and how we can cultivate this kind of listening presence in our sitting, in our formal sitting, and also in our daily life. And we begin with the understanding of how we don't listen. And the Buddha described it in a simple and elegant way, the way we get lost moment after moment. He described that each moment we are, our, our senses are perceiving either pleasantness or unpleasantness, our neutral experience. And if we pay attention, we'll see that when experience is pleasant, perhaps we see a beautiful flower or something, the mind then goes off on, in some way, how to get more, how to make something of it. I should really work more in the garden. I could plant a whole lot of these. I need more vases. It would be beautiful to have these inside. You know, or we're listening to Mozart, and we think, you know, I wish, I wish my son could enjoy this. You know, this is so transporting. I'm going to get a better sound system, and on Sundays, maybe just Sundays, I'll start playing it so he has it in the background. So maybe when he gets older, you know, and on and on. This is what we do. We do it in little ways and big ways. When there's pleasantness we lean forward on how to have more or hold on to it. It's very rare that we can say, just this much, instead of leaning forward, just this much, and arrive right here. We need such a a grand dose of stimulation that we don't know how to really touch the simple pleasures We've lost our capacity to just really listen to the the wind moving and the leaves or the rain, the, the sound of the rain or the roll of the thunder. Our taste, the flavor of tea. To watch the flicker of a candle. To really just step on the earth and feel the pressure and the sensations of walking step by step. Are to feel the movement of the breath. We think it's boring because we're so addicted to something uh, that's just um, really creams our senses, that really is so intense. We don't know how to say just this much. So that's the Buddha described with with pleasure that we're wanting more. And he described with unpleasantness how we immediately get distracted because we want to stop it, control it, get away from it. There's that fundamental reaction that something's wrong with this and I need to fix it. So we don't just stay there and listen and feel. We go into action to change things. You'll remember, I've mentioned many times that the syllable for the word busy in the Chinese script is heart killing. And that just says it all that we, we're so busy trying to make things better and trying to avoid our mistakes and avoid unpleasantness that this heart when heart killing means that we armor ourselves. In a way it's this this curtain of armor that's like a soundproofing. It it shuts out our world. So, pleasantness, we hold on, we try to make more of it, unpleasant, we're busy strategizing how to get away from things. And then when it's neutral, these are the moments when we're maybe brushing our teeth, or taking the garbage out, or driving, or maybe having a conversation with somebody that we love, or somebody we don't know so well, but we're in habitual mode, and we don't expect things to be surprising to us. We just assume it's going to be a certain way. We're not open to new information. And it's neutral, so we check out. We're just not there. So that about covers it. We're spending most of our time leaving the moment, leaving ourselves, leaving home. And it's very difficult to drop it because it's our way of controlling our experience, trying to maximize pleasure and avoid pain. So when we start exploring listening, what happens when the instructions are, well, just listen? There's this habit of thinking we should be doing something, or that we need to add something to what's happening, or prepare for what might go wrong. And when it's listening to each other, how often do we really listen? You know, we usually are planning what we're going to say back or interpreting. We recognize the need for it, but it's hard. Steve Martin writes this, he says, there's now a sophisticated communication technique used between men and women that eases marital strain and opens wide the doors of understanding between the sexes. This new technique, developed by psychologists and sociologists, is called listening. (laughs) It will be interesting to see if the new technique lasts or whether it will disappear and be replaced by older, more traditional methods such as leaving the room. (laughs) (laughs) I just found... um, some of you know the Maxine cartoons and this one says guess which four words women can say to scare a man out of his wits and so you see four different frames and in the first one she's there and her husband's reading a newspaper and she's saying our house is burning and he's going mm-hmm you know and then she comes in the Martians have landed and he goes oh really She, the next frame you have terminal cancer and he goes that's nice dear And then she says, we need to talk. Oh no, please, dear God, I can't, I'm too young to die. You know? (laughs) And the truth is, real communicating is very scary. Why? Because we can't really communicate unless we're willing to put down our defenses, our presuppositions, and let ourselves be vulnerable. So, in a way, that is a death. So why do we bother? I mean, why, why such an emphasis on, on really learning to listen is quite simply that there's no real intimacy possible if we can't step out of our stories about what's going on and really be with someone and take them in as they are in that moment. You see, when we're with people, we have this idea about who they are and about where they're coming from and what they're going to say or what they mean. And as soon as we have a notion about something, the valve is reduced in terms of what kind of information we can take in. We are not available to new information. We're not available to experiencing that person as they are. And it's the same thing with ourselves. When we're living in a story about what we should be doing or how other people are thinking about us or what's wrong with us, we can't listen to what's actually going on inside us in that moment. One of the descriptions I think so beautiful about love is that the most basic form of love is paying attention that the way that we most basically can express love for another is by simply listening, taking that being in just, just as they are. One of the stories that's now been circulating a lot, but I just, I love it so much, describes, it's called Song of the Soul, When a woman in a certain African tribe knows she's pregnant, she goes out into the wilderness with a few friends and together they pray and meditate until they hear the song of the child. They recognize that every soul has its own vibration and expresses its unique flavor and purpose. When the women attune to the song, they sing it out loud. Then they return to the tribe and teach it to everyone else. When the child is born, the community gathers and sings the child's song to him or her. Later, when the child enters education, the village gathers and chants the child's song. When the child passes through the initiation to adulthood, the people come together and sing. And at the time of marriage, the person hears his or her own song. When they get in trouble, when they forget, when they are in pain, others are there to remind them by singing that song. And finally, when the soul is about to pass from this world, the family and friends gather at the person's bed, just as they did at their birth, and they sing the person to the next life. I, I get really moved by that possibility of deep listening. You know, there's a different ways of describing it, but really the possibility of listening so deeply that we can really discover who we are and who the person we're with is, who our children are. So meditation has really been likened to listening to music, and I think it's a great description of it, that we're not um, sitting there meditating in order to get to the end. It's like when you listen to music, you're not waiting for it to end, right? Some of us are, though, when we're meditating, right? When, we li- when we're meditating, experiences keep changing, just like music. And the goal with meditation is not to add anything, not to move it along faster, not to stop anything. It's simply to be there and be aware of what's happening, to be that awareness that, that the song of life plays through us. It's an unconditional kind of relating. That sometimes the music that's playing through the sounds are sounds we like. We could be sitting here and hear the chirping of a bird, and and that's nice. And there might be a pleasantness, or else we might sit here and hear someone's cell phone, and then have a, you know, chain reaction of uh, disapproving or that's interfering, and then we just listen to our chain reaction. It's very powerful when our thoughts become perceived as just other sounds. Could you notice that? How that frees it up a little? Thoughts have less power. They're just sounds in the mind. So let's just look a little closer on how we can deepen meditation with this listening presence. I emphasized it in the instructions, uh tonight because there's a way in which when we begin to just put aside everything and just listen, the mind can become very large. You'll find that in uh, the instructions for practice, you'll be offered different anchors for attention. And most typically it's the breath, the reason we're so out of our body, the breath helps us be in our body, it gives a stable place for us to focus our attention, quiet our mind, really arrive. But some of you might notice that the breath is sometimes hard to find or that the mind gets tense and tight when it tries to pay attention to the breath. Some of you notice that? Yeah. So sounds sounds are an alternate anchor just by listening to sounds, we end up resting in a much more spacious quality of attention. And what you can experiment with as you practice is letting the breath be right at the center of attention, but also being aware of sounds, so you have a quality of both openness and contact, in the body contact. Now the challenge is, how do we stay with that open listening attention When the weather gets intense, when stuff happens we don't like, we might get physically really uncomfortable, can we just listen to the twisting or burning or aching in our body? Or perhaps we remember something we have to do tomorrow that we forgot to prepare for, can we just sit with that anxiety, that squeeze in the heart, and listen to that? I'll read you a poem by Wendell Berry. He says, I go among the trees and sit still. All my stirring becomes quiet around me like circles on water. My tasks lie in their places where I left them asleep like cattle. Then what is afraid of me comes and lives a while in my sight. What it fears in me leaves it. It sings and I hear its song. When what I am afraid of comes I live for a while in its sight What I fear in it leaves it and the fear of it leaves me It sings and I hear its song So there's some basic steps to befriending or coming to peace with the weather we don't like and still listening, still staying there and the first step is, as he describes, to pause. We, we, most classes, when I'm speaking, I, I talk about this because the, there's no chance that we can listen if we just steamroll into the future. So you might sense right now, what does it mean to pause? Just to close your eyes and pause and create a space for inner attention. We pause and relax a little. See what happens if you pause and then just breathe in and relax, breathe out and relax. Wendell Berry puts it, all my stirring becomes quiet around me like circles on water. My tasks lie in their places where I left them asleep like cattle. Can you just let go of the past and the future, leaving them asleep like cattle. And just arrive here, breathing in and relaxing, breathing out and relaxing. So this is the pause. And then we deepen our attention. So what's happening right now? That's the question of mindfulness. So you pause. And you ask yourself, what's going on right now? And maybe what you find when you ask yourself that question is physical discomfort. Maybe you find you're sleepy. You're restless. Maybe you find you're peaceful. You're happy. But I encourage you right now, just keep your attention inward and ask yourself, what's happening inside me right now? We pause, we look to see what's happening. And then the third step, we let ourselves be with it. We simply listen to the experience. Wendell Berry writes, Then what I am afraid of comes, I live for a while in its sight. Can we just be with what's here? Live for a while in its sight. live for a while means feel it in our bodies, in our hearts, whatever's here right now. Just come home to it. And also listen. Listen to the sounds around you. Listen to your own heart. So there's both a quality of connecting with what's going on inside you and a sense of the space that's here. There's room for it. Pausing, relaxing, noticing what's here, and listening, living with it. This is the pathway to sacred presence. Okay, come on back. Now the challenge for most of us is that, as I described, when we pause, if we find that what's in there is unpleasant, we immediately want to fix it, change it. Same thing in our relationships. When we're having unpleasant experiences with others, what do we want to do? Change them. When somebody comes to us and they're troubled, usually we want to fix their problem. We don't like to just live with it in our sight. We don't like to just let life be. And this doesn't mean we shouldn't try to solve problems. But as each of us knows, there are many parts of life that are not a problem to be solved, but something to be lived. It's described a mystery to be lived. For instance, the fact that people die, that we grieve, that we have a kind of primal fear in our body that something's going to go wrong. We can't fix that. But we can learn to live with and be with and listen to in a way that we actually discover a very profound kind of freedom. But it takes a willingness not to keep trying to fix not to interfere so much, to pause, relax, and pay attention. What happens for most of us is that our minds are confused and restless and it's kind of like a body of, of water that we need to just be still enough for things to settle. But we get agitated and we stir it up with more thoughts and more activity and more fixing. I love this um, way that um, Nikos Kazantzakis puts it. He writes, I remember one morning when I discovered a cocoon in the bark of a tree just as the butterfly was making a hole in its case and preparing to come out. I waited a while, but it was too long in appearing and I was impatient. I bent over it and breathed onto it to warm it. I warmed it as quickly as I could, and the miracle began to happen before my eyes faster than life. The case opened, the butterfly started slowly crawling out, and I shall never forget my horror when I saw how its wings were folded back. The wretched butterfly tried with its whole trembling body to unfold them. Bending over it, I tried to help with my breath. In vain. It needed to be hatched out patiently and the unfolding of the wings needed to be a gradual process in the sun. Now it was too late. My breath had forced the butterfly to appear all crumpled before its time. It struggled desperately and a few seconds later died in the palm of my hand. That little body is, I do believe, the greatest weight I have on my conscience. For I realize today that it is a mortal sin to violate the greatest laws of nature. We should not hurry, we should not be impatient, but we should confidently obey the eternal rhythm. This is true for us in our meditation practice and in life, that Um, we are impatient to have ourselves produce or be more comfortable or take care of a problem or figure things out. And there is a natural rhythm that if we can just sit with what's here, if we can just listen to our experience, our heart and each other, the truth unfolds itself naturally, just the way naturally that butterfly could have been warmed by the sun and emerged in a healthy way. In the same way that in meditation practice we need to listen to our inner life, the people of our life all need to be listened to. It's part of um, what allows us to be connected and to know that we belong, to, to feel a sense of being Heard, so we offer an enormous healing to each other when we can put down our busyness and hold a space of listening for each other. I was reading uh, Desmond Tutu, Archbishop Desmond Tutu, and he wrote, he described this current era as a time of radical brokenness, which I thought was a good phrase. Of course, I like the word radical. But <laughs> <laughs> But he said it's a radical brokenness in all our relationships and that everywhere we look in the global family there's disconnection and fear of one another. He also described it as an increasingly noisy era where people are shouting each other in print, at work, on TV, and the volume is directly related to our need to be listened to. People are clamoring for attention and will do whatever it takes to be noticed including killing innocent people, throwing bombs, doing acts of violence. Listening is what's needed in our world, and we need it politically, we need it interpersonally to be intimate, and we need it within our own being if we're to come home to our own hearts. It moves us closer. It lets us be in relationship. You know, the English word for um, health comes from the same root as for the word whole and also from holy. That when we listen, we become connected with there's an understanding that really allows for holiness, for sacred presence. One of the most beautiful stories of listening that I have encountered, and I shared it here a year or two ago, was a story that a physician, uh, Richard Seltzer, included in his book, and he, I'm going to read you just parts of it if I can right now. This is a story about Yeshe Dandan, who's a, who's been the uh, physician for the Dalai Lama as a, a genuine healer, and, uh, wise being on the planet, and in this story, um, he was asked to come to a hospital and examine a patient there, and the staff selected the patient that he'd examined, but they didn't tell Dandan the diagnosis. They didn't tell him what was wrong with her. He just They just said, here, examine this patient in your traditional way, and here's a description of what happened examination, this is uh, one of the doctors' is writing, Seltzer's writing, the examination will take place in our presence after which we will reconvene in the conference room where Yeshe Dandan will discuss the case. We are further informed that for the past two hours Yeshe Danden has purified himself by bathing, fasting and prayer. The patient had been awakened early and told that she was to be examined by a foreign doctor and had been asked to produce a fresh specimen of urine so when we enter her room, the woman shows no surprise. She has long ago taken on that mixture of compliance and resignation that is the face of chronic illness. This was to be but another in an endless series of tests and examinations. Yes, she Dundon steps to the bedside while the rest stand apart, watching. For a long time he gazes at the woman, favoring no part of her body with his eyes but seeming to fix his glance at a place just above her supine form. I too study her. No physical sign nor obvious symptom gives a clue to the nature of her disease. At last he takes her hand, raising it in both of his own. Now he bends over the bed in a kind of crouching stance, his head drawn down into the collar of his robe. His eyes are closed as he feels for her pulse. In a moment he has found the spot, and for the next half hour he remains thus, suspended above the patient like some exotic golden bird with folded wings, holding the pulse of the woman beneath his fingers, cradling her hand in his. All the power of the man seems to have been drawn down to this one purpose. It is is palpation of the pulse raised to a state of ritual, From the foot of the bed where I stand, it is as though he and the patient have entered a special place of isolation, of apartness, about which a vacancy hovers and across which no violation is possible. After a moment, the woman raises back upon her pillow. From time to time, she raises her head to look at the strange figure above her, then sings back once more. I cannot see their hands joined in a correspondence that is exclusive, intimate, his fingertips receiving the voice of her sick body through the rhythm and throb she offers at her wrist. All at once I am envious, not of him, not of Yeshi for his gift of beauty and holiness, but of her. I want to be held like that, touched so, received. And I know that I, who have palpated a hundred thousand pulses, have not felt a single one. At last, Yeshe Dundan straightens, gently places the woman's hand upon the bed and steps back. The interpreter produces a small wooden bowl and two sticks. Yeshe Dundan pours a portion of the urine specimen into the bowl and proceeds to whip the liquid with the two sticks. This he does for several minutes until a foam is raised. Then bowing above the bowl he inhales the odor three times he sets down the bowl and turns to leave all this while he has not uttered a single word as he nears the door the woman raises her head and calls out to him in a voice at once urgent and serene thank you doctor she says and touches with her other hand the place he has held on her wrist as though to recapture something that had visited there Yeshe Dundan turns back for a moment to gaze at her, then steps into the corridor. Rounds are at the end. We are seated once more in the conference room. Yeshe Dundan speaks now for the first time in soft Tibetan sounds I've never heard before. He has barely begun when the young interpreter begins to translate, the two voices continuing in tandem, a bilingual fugue, the one chasing the other. It is like the chanting of monks. He speaks of winds coursing through the body of the woman, currents that break against barriers, eddying. These vortices are in her blood, he says, the last spendings of an imperfect heart. Between the chambers of her heart, long, long before she was born, a wind had come and blown open a deep gate that must never be opened. Through it charged the full waters of her river, as the mountain stream cascades in the springtime, battering, knocking loose the land and flooding her breath. Thus he speaks and is silent. May we now have the diagnosis, the professor asks. The host of these rounds, a man who knows, answers, congenital heart disease, he says, interventricular septic defect with resultant heart failure. A gateway in the heart, I think, that must not be opened. Through it charge the full waters that flood her breath. So, here then is the doctor listening to the sounds of the body to which the rest of us are deaf. He is more than doctor, he is priest. I know, I know, the doctor to the gods is pure knowledge, pure healing. The doctor to man stumbles, must often wound his patient, must die as must he. Now and then it happens as I make my own rounds that I hear the sounds of his voice, like an ancient Buddhist prayer, its meaning long since forgotten, only the music remaining. Then a jubilation possesses me and I feel myself touched by something divine. I wanted to read you the whole piece, or that much of it, because I think we forget the power and the possibility of this quality of listening, where we really allow ourselves to pause and become still and bear witness with our heart and our being to the life that's inside us or in another. It's what the Buddha did. He was called the great physician in the Pali Canon and in many of the Buddhist texts. It's what Kuan Yin, the bodhisattva, did. Her description is the listener to the sorrows of the world. And we each are bodhisattvas in training, really learning to quiet ourselves down so that we can listen to the life that's around us, learning to pause, to relax open, and just even in this moment sense, okay, so what's true right now? Can we listen to our own body and heart? Can we listen to the space around us? Without trying to push away anything or adjust anything. When we really listen, our identity shifts. And this is the essential teaching of the Buddha. In the moments that we're chasing after experience, that we're judging, that we're commenting, we reinforce a sense of being this separate self that's on his or her way somewhere, the doer. But what happens when we're really listening? In a moment of genuine listening presence, we become that spacious awareness, that tenderness, that can hold this world, and perceive this world, and allow this world. It's truly grace. It's beautiful. If we want to experience life as it is, the pathway is to become still and pay attention. We can't see what's happening, clearly, if we're trying to change it, or move it, or do something to it. But in the moments that we actually stop and listen and pay attention, we see what the Buddha described as the the truth of reality, that everything's changing, nothing's holding still. When we listen to sounds, we know that there's no self they're happening to, there's no self that's causing them, they're just happening just a peering phenomenon. We sense the selflessness of experience. When we listen, we just become awareness. We reconnect with the purity and the radiance of our Buddha nature. So this is the gift of a listening presence. Just take a last few moments, if you will, just to sit quietly. And let this be a sacred pause for you. It doesn't matter what the state of body-mind is. Happy, sad, tired, restless. Just to give yourself this gift of pausing. Relax as you breathe in. Relax as you breathe out. That gift of letting go. letting go of thoughts, and when they come, just letting them be like any other sound or image that appears in awareness. A receptive attention, aware of the sounds that are here. the small sounds in the room. The background, more distant sounds. You might notice with the out-breath that you can just dissolve outward with the out-breath. Just let go into the vast space of awareness into that listening presence. And then when the breath comes in, nothing to do. Just notice the wakefulness of the body, listening to sound. And then dissolve out again with the out-breath. It's as if your whole body and mind follow the breath out, dissolving into the space merging with the great sky of awareness. Just listening. This whole world of sound appears inside the spaciousness of awareness. these last few moments just listening to this life with a tender heart a spacious mind We'll close with the words of Rumi in a poem called Quietness. Inside this new love, die. Your way begins on the other side. Become the sky. Walk out like someone suddenly born into color. Do it now. You're covered with thick cloud. Slide out the side. Die and be quiet. Quietness is the surest sign that you've died. Your old life was a frantic running from silence. The speechless full moon comes out now. Inside this new love die.